0: Welcome to Autism Weekly, the podcast that discusses autism news, current events, and inclusion. Each week, we welcome a guest to the program to share their unique perspective and expertise as it relates to the fascinating world of autism. I am your host, Jeff Skobitsky. I'm the founder and president at ABS. I've been in the field of autism and applied behavior analysis as a clinician and advocate for nearly two decades. This week, we welcome Dr. Teresa Gabrielson to the podcast to discuss the path to an autism diagnosis and the important role of the parent and the pediatrician. Dr. Gabrielson is an associate professor at Brigham Young University with academic research interests in autism, disabilities, and interdisciplinary treatment and support. She recently published a journal article titled. Identifying Autism in a Brief Observation, Among Others Relating to Caregivers' Path to a Diagnosis. Dr. Gabrielson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So I, I had a chance to take a look at the article that you did. Before we go into the details of what you were able to find in your article, can you give us just a little bit of a background of, of who, you, who you are, how you got involved into psychology and, and disabilities and autism in general?
1: Well, it was not a straight path, to be sure. Um, in high school, I was interested in psychology and did a little bit of juggling to get into a psychology class a year or two ahead of me. And I loved it, but ended up on a different path. And I taught accounting for 25 years. Ah. And at the end, <laughs> um, which was wonderful. And I loved it, but I was ready for a change. So I was searching through new careers, and I I knew some things were interesting to me. And autism was actually one of them. And so putting in those search terms, school psychology came up, which was a part of psychology I never even know existed, mm-hmm. but I fell in love with it immediately and got into that path. Um, just as my youngest was going to college. So this is very definitely a second career for me.
0: Yeah, you know what? Uh, you don't hear too many people go from the world of numbers to the world of people in such a such a quick path. But um, based off of uh, a lot that you've already added to the field, I could say that we're very happy that you made that <laughs> movement. Um, so was was there was there a moment? I mean, a lot of us have personal histories that say. You know this is this is what is so important about autism uh, there's There's a lot of us that have family members that have been affected. There are friends. Uh, what drew you to the autism diagnosis or the autistic population um specifically
1: well um I think you're right it all It always comes from a personal contact and this was. A little three-year-old boy, I did not know at the time even what autism was, but he was in my neighborhood and he was not didn't yet have verbal language and wasn't yet toilet trained. But to his family's credit, he was being fully included in a local faith community, which was where I encountered him. And like, no one knew what to do. They were trying all kinds of Um, methods to help him learn how to participate. And in my opinion, I didn't think any of them were very successful. So I volunteered Mm -hmm. to help him. And through that experience, I learned so much, not only from him, but from starting to ask people, like, here's what I'm seeing. What can I do? I talked to teachers. I talked to physicians. Um, He got into special ed preschool at about that same time. And so he started to make a lot of progress very quickly. So within a year, he had verbal language and oh my goodness, he had so much to say. Mm -hmm. I was so impressed and I actually became very attached, which was a problem because I had to learn to fade my support out so that he could be more independent. But I learned so much in my relationship with him that I determined that's the field I wanted to go into.
0: Yeah, relationships with with children, especially with disabilities, I, I've read research about how that actually increases quality of life for the stakeholders and all that are involved with them. So it's not surprising to me that that direct relationship of actually having the time to sit down and engage with somebody who maybe experiences life a little bit differently, mm-hmm. um, is able to, to really bring people into the field and ask them to, to search more. Um, well, I, I, I love the the personal connection. I love the fact that we got to hear a little bit about how you got here. But um, one, one question before, before we go into how you're looking at this brief observation that you're that you're looking at and diagnostics in general, what is a parent path to getting a diagnosis right now? How does that start? And what are the things that that start that movement going forward?
1: Well, it can look different for for every family, but it always starts the same way. And that's with the concern. Um, But there's no designated person for that concern. It might be the parents. It might be grandparents. It might be a family friend. It might be the pediatrician. Who knows? Um, But somebody's concerned, and they're concerned because um, development doesn't seem to be on track or there's something different Mm. about the child. And so they want to know what to do to help. So that's where it starts. I'm concerned, and I want help. So who do I contact? Um, in the very young age range that we're talking about, the most consistent professional is the pediatrician. Mm-hmm. Um, kids are not yet in a school system. Um, there are not a lot of other professionals who have contact with little kids. But pediatricians do, and they do on a regular basis. So if if we're going to contact a pediatrician, this is part of um, – What a pediatrician does is surveillance, developmental surveillance, to make sure that everything is going okay with development. But to be fair, a pediatrician only has, you know, maybe 10 minutes with your child during a visit. So they really rely on a parent to kind of fill them in because the parent knows the child, lives with the child, notices things every day and can see the child in their natural environment. And so if a pediatrician asks you questions about development, that's part of their job, but they may not ask you all the questions that you need them to. So then it's the parent's um, part to speak up and say, like, Mm -hmm. I've noticed this and I'm worried about it or I'm concerned Mm -hmm. about this. Um, And we've done some research that showed even in kids where like screeners may have said that everything was fine, that those conversations between parents and pediatricians really did show that things were not on track. Mm -hmm. And those conversations become the important thing. So hopefully, um, with either screening and and, or, and and hopefully and, those conversations, if there are concerns, then we can go to an early intervention agency, which is accessible to everybody. That's one of the nice things about about early intervention. Uh, for kids under three and um an evaluation can be done. It may not be the most comprehensive evaluation. It it's fairly comprehensive. They look at all domains of develop of development. And the nice thing about that is like they can start intervention as soon as the evaluation is completed. Now in the meantime parents may be waiting for a comprehensive evaluation to happen either through medical um, agencies or um, mental health, so you could be going through a psychology route or a physician route, mm-hmm. depending on what you have best access to and where the best expertise is. And we'd be looking for a comprehensive evaluation where we're looking at all the aspects of the child's development, so we're looking at language and um, independence and early literacy skills and social development and cognitive development. Mm-hmm. Um, we're looking at all of those things. A comprehensive eval really helps us know what we need to do for intervention.
0: Now, uh, Dr. Gabrielson, before we get to the comprehensive eval, if I, if I rewind just a little bit and get yep. to that conversation with the physician, um, I would imagine is that you have a lot of parents who are first time parents or um, and just really don 't know what to be mm-hmm. looking for and don't don 't necessarily know that I should be expressing this during my thirty minute or twenty minute well check um, to their pediatrician um, and they sometimes suppress some of the thoughts they might be having, and that maybe that trust isn 't there because it's it 's new to them. What are some of those things that parents might need to just feel confident voicing or exploring with their pediatrician, right or wrong, but just getting that voice out? What are some of those common concerns?
1: You know, I think you're absolutely right. No parent wants anything to be wrong with their child. And mm-hmm. and so, yes, there might be some holding back or there might be some Um, reassurance by looking around and saying, well, I I know eye contact is is something that I've concerned about, but he made eye contact with me today. Or, you know, I'm seeing these small signs that are reassuring to me. Um, And so they may not discuss it with the physician. But learning about the early signs of autism is primarily social interactions. And if it's your first baby, you don't quite know Mm -hmm. what typical social interaction is with the parent. So looking at social interaction, looking at language development, that's often the first thing that a parent will bring to a pediatrician is that language development doesn't seem to be happening as rapidly Mm -hmm. as with other children, um, my child's age. And then uh, exposure to other kids can help you learn a lot. So whether it's within the family or in the community, Um, If you have the ability to be around other kids and you see kids the same age as as your child and you you notice like language development looks different, social development looks different, sometimes we can even see signs in motor development um, Mm -hmm. and behavioral development. So um, the more you can see children your child's age, the more you can notice about differences. Differences, not deficits. Those are differences to mm-hmm. talk about with your pediatrician.
0: Exactly. And, and I think that as, as a parent is that I never want to find myself sitting there and comparing my children to everybody else's children all the time. But the one place that should be a safe discussion should be the pediatrics office and mm-hmm. helping to kind of figure out, you know, what's real versus where I might be a little bit hypersensitive as a parent to say, oh, I want my child to always be at their best. And I'm seeing slight deficit areas that maybe are showing a difference or are showing the way that they're approaching a scenario might not be the same way somebody else is approaching it. Mm -hmm. Um, If they are seeing that, I mean, and they are concerned, what, what would they initially be asking of their pediatrician? i mean, are there are there simple tests? are there are there ways for the pediatrician to help support that process just to be able to kind of give them a better understanding of, am I on the right path here? Are my concerns are they reasonable at this point?
1: Mm-hmm. So um, pediatricians have frequent well child checks right? I mean, that's part of their developmental surveillance. If you're taking your child in because they're sick, that that may not be the ideal time to bring up developmental concerns, Mm -hmm. but these frequent well-child checks that are already scheduled as part of your child's health care are designed exactly for these conversations. So, um sometimes a pediatrician will do this informally by asking do you have any concerns and then kind of go through a mental checklist sometimes it'll be a written questionnaire that might be sent to you in advance of your visit sometimes it will be given to you in the waiting room or sometimes the physician will go through it on their computer mm-hmm. while they're talking with you just checking in on developmental milestones how things are going um And I think most of them ask, like, what are your concerns? So when you get those openings, whether it's a question about, like, is your child doing this or not yet, or what are your concerns, I think that's the time where you would say, I need help with knowing how to handle this. Or I'm seeing that my child seems to be... developing at a different rate, and I don't know what to do. Um, So giving the physician that last little piece of tell me what to do, um, or give me some resources, I think is very helpful. Um, Because if you just say, I'm worried about this, the response could be, well, children develop at different rates, which Mm -hmm. is true. But if you ask, I need help, know what to do for this then you're likely to get a slightly different answer yeah and that answer might be well here are some resources here are places you can contact Um, so kind of how you ask the question may change how um, the pediatrician responds to you and when you're asking for help like I need help I I want to know what to do because I'm seeing this Mm -hmm. and I think you're likely to get a different conversation um, than if you just have, I'm worried about my child and compared to other children, which is true. But in many cases, that's going to be okay. In Mm -hmm. fact, the pediatricians know that in most cases that's going to be okay, but that doesn't mean we can't do anything. Mm -hmm. So the emphasis on action, I think is probably key.
0: I like, I like the way that you're framing that it's, it's an action oriented request. It's, it's, clarifying my fear and asking, point me in the right direction for the next layer of support. And if you don't feel like there's a the next layer of support that's needed, you can say that now, but I want mm-hmm. the resource to tell me where to go. And that that kind of brings us to that next step that you were talking about, is that the early intervention specialist or scheduling a, uh, a diagnostic assessment if it's appropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, and through that process, What I've learned, and this is predominantly in every state, there is a wait period. Uh, There is not enough professionals out there who can do that role um, in a timeline that's needed right now, just because we've gone from one in over a hundred children who have been diagnosed with autism to one in 54. And if I read your research correctly, it might even be more than one in 54 Uh, based off the fact that we're not we're not getting people into the process and screening them appropriately to be able to get the diagnostics done. So with those children, when we know treatment is so important to be able to to help them to be able to incorporate all the skills that they're capable of doing at an early age. What what is, I mean, is there a is there a shortened, uh, abbreviated process for that? Is there a way to be able to get an initial answer before going deep into an assessment process? How does that work?
1: So once a concern is identified, screening is one way to say we've got a child who might be we not everybody likes the term at risk, but mm-hmm. it means there's a risk that there's something happening here and we want to act quickly and not wait. So like, don't wait is the key. So if you have screening data that indicates there may be a risk, there are actually some states who say that's good enough for us, we're going to get you an Mm -hmm. intervention right now, while you're waiting for your evaluation. Um, Not all states have removed that barrier. But in some states, that's good enough. Yeah. In in the meantime, early intervention does not require a diagnosis, and I'm talking about the formal early intervention system mm-hmm. that covers birth to three. Um, so they don't require a diagnosis of any kind. They will evaluate for what's needed and address what's needed. So that's a very mm-hmm. important early step. You don't have to wait for um, all of the clinics all of the clinics in the country are trying to reduce the wait time. They're they're trying all that they can think of to reduce the wait time. And some of the things are providing parent resources. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, there are some really great um, free developmental resources that are available. One of them that's come out of um, University of California, Davis is called help is in your hands. It's, free, it's online, it's parent training, it's all about the skills that your child needs to develop and it teaches you as a parent how to work on those skills while you're waiting for perhaps a formal evaluation and more targeted intervention. That's that's one of my favorites. Um, there are a lot of toolkits available from Autism Speaks mm-hmm. that kind of guide you through Very basic information. It comes from research centers. It's evidence-based. And if you look through these toolkits, I recommend them to a lot of families for for solving targeted problems. So, yes, getting an evaluation can help you get the higher level of intervention that you need. But there's no need to wait for that. Mm -hmm. While you're on the waiting list, there's a lot of service you can access that doesn't cost, doesn't have to wait for insurance coverage um you don't have to have a diagnosis to to qualify for the service there's a lot available to parents if they look i have another great book that i recommend called um the at risk oh no now i'm going to say the name wrong the activity kit for at risk toddlers i think is the name okay um, it's by the authors of the mchat the modified checklist for autism in toddlers and mm-hmm. we can look up that name and and get it corrected but um It's very low cost and it's just full of activities that you can do while you're feeding, changing, um, bathing, putting your child to bed, Mm -hmm. social interaction that you can work on with your child. So very low cost. There's so much you can do while you're waiting for your diagnosis.
0: And all all of those sound like such important pieces to be able to apply to your child while you're waiting for care that empower the parent as well, mm-hmm. is that as a parent, you never want to feel helpless. You never want to feel like I'm ill-equipped to do what I need to. And I'm sitting here waiting for a diagnosis that might take six to nine months for me to get in to see the right person right now. And, and that's shrinking. And I, I know that, but
1: mm-hmm.
0: it at, at least gives the idea of directionality. And one of the most important things for good care is parent involvement anyway. So it's a good starting point to be able to get there. Um, Now, the other piece of this is is that I know that uh, the diagnostic uh, assessments over time for autism have become a little bit more refined. Um, I know that uh, in in your research, looking at the, the brief observation for diagnosing of autism, is it seems like a step in in the right direction of being able to give a little bit more opportunity to not have to go into a full um, neurological examination, Mm -hmm. but still be able to get somebody access to care. And if you need to refer for more testing to go deeper into a neuropsych evaluation, which Mm -hmm. might, it'll give you more information, but might not be necessary. It seems like a right way to go. Can you tell me a little bit about the research that, that you had put on at BYU?
1: Well, first of all, we partner with a lot of great institutions, including the University of Utah. Um, We have partnerships all across the country. Um, We have training networks that are multi-state. So none of us do this by ourselves Mm -hmm. to start with. Um, (laughs) But there there is a lot of push, and this is, again, to get um, access of care. And we're also really worried about equity now in, in access of care. And that has been shown in the literature that there are many populations that don't have equitable access mm-hmm. to care. So when you talk about empowerment, we're looking at um, a very long diagnostic process that is very necessary for cases where we're not You know, it's not really evident that autism is the reason we're seeing what we're seeing. And we want to take our time in those cases. But there are many cases where it's fairly evident and Mm -hmm. pretty much everybody agrees that autism is what we're looking at. And if that's the case, we're looking at empowering uh, physicians to be able to meet all the requirements for insurance, for example, Oh, okay. Then insurance would require, in order to cover autism services, so the physicians are looking for ways to administer shorter in-person assessments that aren't fully diagnostic, but provide the observational measure that's that maybe an insurance company would require. Hmm. Um, partners, uh, when physicians partner with psychologists, they can bring in a lot more um information into that diagnostic decision, um, but they are looking for ways to make autism that's very evident on its way so we can we can get a diagnosis accomplished, meet all the requirements for insurance coverage as far as intervention goes, and meet the requirements for the family in terms of tell me about my child mm-hmm. and I and I think that's that's where the longer evaluations have always been strong in that the more comprehensive the evaluation is, the more we can tell you about how your child's brain is working and what what the kind of fine-tuned targets for your child would be mm-hmm. and some some children don't have as immediate need for support, and we can take our time um, we're still providing some support along the way, but we can take our time in diagnosis, but there are other children who really need to get into treatment right now. And if everybody knows what it is, then then let's go with some of those shorter measures that can give us definitive answers and get them into the treatment they need right away. And then the parent or the family has always has the option to get more in-depth information from the school district Um, from further clinical evaluations. It's not like once you've finished that evaluation, you no longer have access to that service. Because the schools are always going to be there to evaluate you. um, And you should be having follow-up appointments Mm -hmm. with that clinic that you first visited. So your access to that information is not cut off. We're just trying to get kids into services as soon as we can by meeting the requirements as best we can in a short period of time.
0: Yeah, that I, make it makes sense. Everything that you just described, I think, to me sounds logical, and it's actually solving our biggest problem, which is what we were talking about initially: is access to care. Is that if the professionals and the researchers are indicating that you know what, I, I can get to a ninety-five to ninety-six percent surety on mm-hmm. this being the diagnosis, that's going to open up the chance for treatment or the chance for social groups to occur or for therapy, if it's necessary to start, then why wouldn't we go down that route? I've seen it work. I've seen it work in California. I've seen it work in North Carolina. I think Utah is finally exploring the full depths of this, which is wonderful to see because you do want to give that care. So I, I, I applaud the effort that, that you're putting into getting the research out on this because it's hard to fight the research. It's easier to fight an opinion. Mm-hmm. And have you hit any of those uh, barriers with discussions that you've had about people pushing back on this on this uh, technique or or technology of utilizing a brief assessment?
1: Um, yes, and that has come from very high levels in autism world. And there's good. Re- I mean, the the pushback again, makes total sense. And mm. the pushback is if you don't do that comprehensive evaluation, you're not giving well-informed intervention. So mm. like, so my answer to that is we'll continue the evaluation process, you know, over time, but let's, let's open the gate with that initial uh, identification or diagnosis, and then let's have follow-up Um, let's connect with the school district, let's continue to evaluate to inform intervention. So, I mean, the argument was you're shortchanging the family if you don't do a comprehensive evaluation. And the example was, would you ask your cardiac surgeon to just get his heart surgery done faster? Um, Mm -hmm. You know, that was the point that was being made, and it's valid. So Mm -hmm. I think we just have to rethink what a diagnostic process looks like and understand that it it has many parts and many players and mm-hmm. maybe more of a partnership proposition where we follow children over time and make sure that the interventions are meeting their needs through mm-hmm. kind of a continual assessment process.
0: Yeah, I mean would it be fair to say that that this process just by even opening this initial level allows people to access supports. So mm-hmm. Say you're wrong and you have the diagnostics that were confirmed in a full battery of assessments nine months later, when you finally get the full appointment already set up to see a mm-hmm. psychologist if you wanted to do a full neuropsych battery and say you're wrong. What's what's the harm for most of the kids? Isn't it? Isn't it typically? I mean, if it's behavioral work, it's typically Good care, anyways. I I know my daughter's probably benefit from some intervention over time. It's uh, it's one of those things that you know it's better to be wrong and maybe apply a little bit of extra care in the interim than to be delayed in applying something that needed to be done from day one. Is that is that a fair assessment as far as the timeliness of getting somebody access into mm-hmm. treatment?
1: It it's very fair. Um, But there's two aspects to that to discuss. And one is, yes, the treatment we give to very young children with autism helps all children. It's meant to promote independence. It's Mm -hmm. meant to get them on track developmentally. Yeah, you're right. That never hurts. The problem is if we never do follow up and we don't have continual care, because I've been a school psychologist in a junior high school and met more than one child who was um diagnosed with an autism spectrum disorder at a very young age by a well-meaning clinician who wanted to get them into services but that was never followed up and mm. you're right it turned out that's not what it was yeah you know and so the clinician's thinking well the parents will sort that out later let's just get them into to intervention and that's a that's not a wrong way of thinking but if you don't have the follow up here we have kids in junior high who still think they have autism and they don't. Mm-hmm. And there've been a lot of perhaps missed opportunities along their path that we could have resolved if we had been doing better follow-up care and, and really saying like, let's take a look at your, at, at what's going on with you yep. right now and see what you need now and not rely on a um, quite frankly, an outdated evaluation that needed yep. to be um, revisited.
0: And and I think that, uh, I think we're on, on the same page with this because the way that I would be seeing it as well from the clinical lens that I'm coming from is I should be doing this with all the kids on a regular basis anyway. Interdisciplinary work works through numerous lenses. And if I'm not hearing from the psychologist, that's part of my team, the pediatrician, that's a part of my team mm-hmm. on a regular basis, then I'm not getting a full picture anyways. So even if I am sure about the diagnosis, I probably still want to have continuity over time and make sure that everybody is still seeing those same areas of concern, deficit, or if we're seeing improvements in areas where we need to open up opportunity and open up more community uh, experience to be able to help guide the development of a child. So I like what you say because it really hits on interdisciplinary work. Mm -hmm. which I think is key in treatment of most complex diagnoses. So how do you see interdisciplinary work working with your assessment process beyond the follow-up? Does the pediatrician have a role still?
1: Absolutely. Um, So we we have what we want the world to be. And then we have what is possible. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. what we want the world to be is a world where the pediatrician is communicating with the school and they're communicating with maybe the speech language pathologist that is in an outpatient clinic. And they're communicating with the occupational therapist, the physical therapist, the behavioral therapist, that they are all communicating Mm -hmm. with each other on how the child is doing, what their current skill level is, what's next, and how we can best support them. Because if, if we only do that once, children change mm-hmm. <laughs> throughout their lifetime. And even if we have um, all of the information is relevant in their preschool years, it's going to change in their elementary years. It will change a lot when they're adolescents, and they will have different needs as young adults and emerging adults. So um, we often talk about that as build your team. Yeah. Um, So, in some areas of the country, this is easier than others. So, in some places, you can kind of walk into a team, and it's got a care coordinator or a social worker, and you've got wraparound care, and and it's wonderful. And in other places of the country, you have to create that on your own, and it's possible. Mm -hmm. Um, Your school can be a good partner. You have access to a lot of professionals there, but your local healthcare um, community is also a great part of your team. And if you can be the bridge between those two systems to help them talk to each other, everything's going to be better, Mm
0: -hmm. not only
1: for you, but for the child, there won't be as many, um, there won't be as much backtracking or going down wrong paths. If those teams are actually talking to each other and all it really takes is, you know, a release of information piece of paper between those teams to allow them to talk to each other um, to coordinate care because otherwise the parent is doing all that care coordination. And while that's possible for a parent, parents also need to be parents.
0: Exactly. Like they it's, have hard, job. it's hard to communicate across all that different okay. medical and psychological and behavioral language. It's the mm-hmm. parent becomes an interpreter at the same time, which becomes right. even harder. One thing, but um as you As you started going through this diagnostic process and you started really defining access to care and talking about ways to be able to make it efficient, ways to be able to help support people getting through that process, there are people that are driving two, three hours to come see a psychologist okay. that that don't have access to that um, as as horrible as Covid has been. One of the things that it's brought out in all of us is a way to be able to think differently about Mm -hmm. the way we do our work. Um, Can you just give me a little bit of an understanding of how that's working with the diagnostics of children um, right now? And if you see that going on long term as a possibility for us, especially for those rural areas that don't have as many care providers.
1: I definitely think it's going to stay with us. Telehealth um, as, as a way to practice, I think will stay um, because we were already starting down that road. And that's actually what allowed people to pivot so quickly mm. um, when everything shut down. Um, and quickly is a relative term. I, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have to acknowledge that. But telehealth was already being implemented and considered in a lot of clinics to reach rural areas in particular Um, out here in the West, that we were probably out ahead of that curve a little bit. Um, The insurance companies weren't crazy about it. So it took a lot of convincing to get those services paid. And we weren't successful in getting insurance to cover all disciplines on Mm. telehealth. Um, Speech and language led out with telehealth services. Um, Physicians also were leading out in telehealth. Um, there were a lot of other ideas about training remotely, such as the ECHO networks to train physicians in rural areas, using the, the physicians in the urban areas to reach out to rural physicians to help them gain the skills they needed to take care huh. of their populations. So all of that was already rolling, but we there were insurance barriers, and of course, nobody thinks it's as good as mm-hmm. being in person. So. <laughs> Um what the pandemic did was make it so that was the only mode possible. Yep. Um, just hospital policies would not allow in-person visits. And so the autism world scrambled. And very quickly, there were some some diagnostic methodologies that were immediately adaptable to online without any problem whatsoever. There were others, you know, some of our tried and true gold standard measures that were just could not be done ah. and not measure social interaction with face masks and barriers and shields. And so that particular mode that we had relied on so heavily We're just off the table. We couldn't do it Mm -hmm. anymore. So some research had already been done on its um, telehealth autism diagnostic measures. And that was great, but it was only for little kids. And that's who we want. That's the most, um, most urgent need anyway. So like everyone suddenly got training on that again. And there were other universities who had been um, piloting a method of assessment where the parents are taking videos on their phones of certain events like a meal and play by the peer and play by themselves and uploading it to a clinician and then the clinician would do the diagnostic visit based on those videos. So like all of that was already happening and then suddenly that jumped to prime importance and everyone wants training on that. There were other measures other measures that were just like we're going to put these two evidence-based practices together and We're not going to pretend that it has a score or a cutoff, but we think it will give you valuable observation that you can use with other measures. Mm -hmm. So yes, that's absolutely going to continue. Um, Just like now where people who don't have good internet can still get an in person appointment when necessary. um, I think when everything opens up again, anyone who needs a telehealth visit will be able to get that because now we have all the tools we need to get Mm -hmm. it done. Always interesting,
0: always interesting how crisis sometimes brings about some really good ideas. And no matter how much I could describe what goes on in my house, if somebody were able to take a picture or a video of it and see what's going on, it's such a different image. And it seems like a tool that we probably could have benefited from ages ago for that process. And it's nice that we've gotten that push to get there. Well, I'd I'd like to just kind of go full circle, is that we've talked a lot about um, the access to care, how diagnostics is going, what questions families can ask, how they can move that process along, how we can make sure that more people are getting the access to the support and treatment that's needed, and during their waits, what they can do. Do you have um, recommendations or resources that families can go back to that Um, You had mentioned some really good ones for while they're on their wait list. But do you have other ideas on where families can go and seek out information to support them through the diagnostic process?
1: Sure. Um, So I always think of parent support first because it's a very difficult process. So around here, I have parents contact the Utah Parent Center. which is staffed by parents who have been on this journey for a lot longer than you have and can guide you through. Um, When there are questions that I can't answer, the Utah Parent Center can. And I am pretty sensitive about not giving parents too much information. (laughs) So providing the Utah Parent Center as a helpline and like, I need information about this, they can provide that. And I would imagine
0: most, most communities have that sort of parent center. So that wouldn't be unique to Utah, would it?
1: No, all states do, and and sometimes it's called the Family to Family Network. Um, It goes by different names Um, in Utah. It's just called the Utah Parent Center. Okay. If you look for Family to Family or Utah Parent Center, you should find something in your state. I've seen a couple of them. Utah's is actually great. All of them are helpful. Um, So parent support, I really like and have that just dial-up resource to ask questions to, plus webinars and meetings and training, everything else. Um, The CDC is where I like to send parents. There's so much information about autism on the internet and the majority of it, it's probably not (laughs) evidence-based. So I like to go to the CDC website, learn the signs, act early. There are developmental milestone lists, a lot of developmental helps, some explanations of what treatments might look like and how to talk to your doctor. There's a lot of video-based examples that I love So CDC, Learn the Signs Act Early, is a wonderful site. I've mentioned the Autism Speaks toolkits that don't help with the diagnosis, but guide parents through specific problem solving. Um, Feeding, for example. There's one on feeding. Um, There's one on sleep. There's one on the first 100 days Mm -hmm. after diagnosis. What do I do? And I'm (laughs) diagnosed as an adult. Now what do I do? Everything from haircuts to blood draws, it's all in there. Um, The other site I really like is Autism Navigator. Um, There are a lot of parts of that site that are accessible to the public for free. And one of my favorites is called the Autism Video Glossary, which shows you side-by-side video examples of here's a two-year-old in the same situation as this other two-year-old, and one of them is showing typical development, and the other one is showing some significant signs of autism. So parents can look side by side to see that, Mm -hmm. and they have that same kind of video example for all the various treatments.
0: Okay. Autism
1: that can be so confusing, but in that um, autism video glossary in Autism Navigator, you can see this is what this treatment mode looks like. This is what Mm -hmm. this treatment mode looks like. And there are multiple examples across all kinds of families that show you like, this is what this treatment can look like for your child and can, and how it can help Mm -hmm. your child. So those are, those are my go-to. Those are my favorites. Um, The other thing at the CDC website is there's a link to the ages and stages questionnaire, which is general developmental surveillance not autism specific but it's provided through easter seals so there's a couple of steps along that path um, around here help me grow provides like phone-based um, developmental surveillance with ages and stages questionnaire as well a lot of physicians will refer families to help me grow so that they can be monitored with their development and um, Autism Speaks also has the Modified Checklist for Autism in Toddlers, the MCHAT, mm-hmm. which is probably the most used screener. It's not absolutely perfect, but it's so incredibly helpful for mm-hmm. identifying early signs of autism. And that's available on the the um, Autism Speaks website. At the end of it, if you click through the questionnaires, um, it'll say, Please share these results with your pediatrician. Yeah. So it actually has the action component too. It's not just like, "Hey, here's your score. Good luck with that." Yeah. It's like, please share this information with your pediatrician. So I also yeah. like the action part of that.
0: I think it's great that they give that guide, and I'll tell you, Doctor Gabrielson, is that as long as I've been in the field, I feel like the field itself continuously is moving along, learning, and educating, and that. The research that you've done, the information that, that you're sharing today is going to be so empowering for so many families. Do you have any any words of, words of wisdom uh, for pediatricians or for parents just to kind of give them that last thought of, you know, this is the one thing that I just make sure
1: that you're doing? Um, I could probably do it in three words, okay? The first two are don't wait. Mm -hmm. And that's for both the parent and the pediatrician. And that has been the message all along um, that everyone in the autism world has been trying to get out. So don't wait. Um, And it's kind of like, if you see something, say something, whole different topic, but, (laughs) but don't wait. (laughs) Um, And the other, the other one is listen. And I think um, this is more for pediatricians, but, just recognize that you're in a partnership with a parent and this is not news. They know this and they're very comfortable with it from a medical perspective. And when, you know, there's something that's going wrong um, with a body system, like they know how to do that. They know how to partner with parents. And I think the thing that we're looking to in, um, in like the new generation of pediatricians and in continuing education for pediatricians already in practice, is just listen to what the parent is saying, especially if they're from a different culture than you are. They may use different words than Mm -hmm. you're accustomed to when they're describing their concerns. So just that very careful listening and acting on their concerns instead of saying, let's wait and see what happens. Let's act and like you say, the, the worst thing that could happen is we could have better developmental <laughs> skills. Yeah. You know, like just just listen and act, don't wait.
0: It's really, I mean, I think those are the guiding pieces is don't wait and make sure you're listening and being a part of that team. So, well, thank you very much. We appreciate your time, Dr. Gabrielson. And I, I think that everybody's gonna benefit from everything you're able to share today. So we appreciate your participation.
1: I love to help. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all of the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS. ABS is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like Autism Spectrum Disorder. You can learn more about ABS and the Autism Weekly podcast by visiting abskids, that's plural, dot com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week.